Uh, let me start with just a touch of review, kind of catch up with where we are. Um, we've got three more weeks after today, and the assignment on the syllabus is actually accurate, uh, much to my amazement. Um, so be looking at those chapters for next week. Those uh, are basically the um, sixth and seventh chapters of the gospel, or yeah, seventh and eighth chapters of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, 15th and 16th chapters of Matthew, and then the 5th and 6th chapters of the Gospel of John uh, will be the assignment for next week. And everyone should have gotten a handout for today's class. Um, I trust that came through an hour ago or so. Um, as we've been saying all along, Gospel of Mark, I think, is this sort of adult version of the disciples following Jesus and of their experience of him. So we start with them as uh, with Jesus as an adult and right into the public ministry. Then when we get Matthew is when we start to have a difficulty between the way Matthew gives us the account and the way Mark does. And so my argument is um, that uh, when you add Luke, what becomes apparent is that Luke affirms pretty much the order that you have in Mark. And so it leaves Matthew as the odd person out. It is what I just call the Matthew problem. And it sort of raises the issue of what is this author up to? And my argument, as I said last week, is that I think while all four gospels present Jesus in the same way, in the most fundamental sense, that he is understood to be the Messiah or Christ, that Matthew actually organizes his gospel around that argument. And so the argument itself is what gives structure to the gospel. And so in Matthew, you have him starting with the genealogy, linking Jesus into King David and into Abraham, this very significant um, Hebrew genealogy that establishes Jesus in that messianic line. Then you have the birth narrative and the birth narrative and the and the opening chapters that are full of appeals to the Hebrew Bible or Old Testament, again, linking Jesus into those predictive passages about the Messiah. And then when you have the opening manifesto, as it were, the Sermon on the Mount, I think um, it concludes with the observation that Jesus teaches with someone who has authority. And I think Matthew moves into the argument based in Jesus's authority as being the authority of the Christ. That argument from authority, I think, continues then in chapters eight and nine. And while we run into the problem that Matthew gives those episodes in a very different order than you have them in the other gospels, I would argue that what he's doing is ordering them from the least to the greatest, starting with healing uh, physical maladies there in Capernaum and concluding in raising Jairus's daughter from the dead. And then in between, you have Jesus's authority over nature, the wind and the waves, Jesus's authority over demons and Jesus's authority over sin and sinners, the authority to forgive sins. The authority theme runs throughout that. And I think what Matthew is doing then is ordering the material according to that argument instead of giving it to us in a chronological fashion. I, I think um, Matthew continues to do that. And, I, and, and in, in this class, we don't have time to be looking in detail at how that happens. I've, I've chosen to focus on chapters eight and nine in Matthew to try to make that argument and, and show how I think uh, the gospel is working there in Matthew. But having done that, 
I'm not going to try to go through that kind of detail in subsequent sections. Uh, you can just take, for instance, chapter 10 in Matthew, where he is calling and then instructing and sending the disciples. And again, you've got Matthew clustering a lot of events and teaching that the other gospels separate out. And in order to find some of what you have in Matthew 10, um, not only will you have to go to different places in Luke or Mark, but you'll have to go to the second half of Luke. So that Matthew includes in what I would call sort of the first half of the gospel, the portion that takes you up to um, Peter's profession of faith and the transfiguration. Matthew has in the first half of his gospel several things that don't occur in Luke until the second half of Luke's gospel. So you you have that kind of thing going on uh, throughout the gospel accounts. But I think what happens pretty consistently is uh, Luke affirms the order that you have in the gospel of Mark to a very large extent. And then Luke will add material as well. He, he sort of complements and completes the story that you get in the other gospels. And Matthew continues to structure his gospel in terms of his argument and also in terms of this fivefold structure of an introduction and then teaching and then episodes, teaching and then episodes, teaching and then episodes. And you have that fivefold structure right through to the end of the gospel, I think. And there's probably something to be made of that in terms of uh, either the Pentateuch, um, the Torah, the five books of the Torah, or... Um, even picking up on the Ten Commandments, though I think the the fivefold structure of the Torah is probably the more likely thing that Matthew might be linking into just structurally in terms of how he how he uh, shapes that that gospel. Um, so I want to go on from there today, but uh, just pause. Are, are there any questions that you wanted to still pick up on from any of that or anything we've done so far? If there are, I'd just pause and... I have a question. So, you know, throughout, like, multiple passages, they always refer how to the people are, you know, referring to Jesus, like, speaking with authority. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, he spoke in a different way, like, through, you know, parables, um, and maybe the point of referring himself to, like, son of man is that authoritative idea. But if anything, I think speaking of parables might be more casual, like, what is this authoritative speak that was different um, than like what they were used to? Yeah, good question. You know, it's interesting. We're going to read a little bit of the sermon as, as Luke gives it to us a little later. And, and, and it may be the best way to answer that question is uh, to take these sections of teaching like the Sermon on the Mount and read them out loud and just kind of listen to them ourselves for the first time, as it were. It is very striking teaching. I think a lot of people who would not view Jesus the way the scriptures do at all would still rank him right up there with Socrates and Buddha and, you know, a couple of others like this as being one of the most remarkable teachers that's ever, that we've ever known of. There is a, a, uh, a concise, uh, what's, what's the right word there? Concision? I don't know. A conciseness um, about his teaching and a power to it that, that, that is remarkable. 
I, I get the impression with him, even it's interesting, your comment about the parables are more casual and, and they are certainly, uh, sort of colloquial, common, very accessible. But my word, do they leave you thinking and, and puzzled. And, and my image of Jesus is, is that he, he's walking down a, you know, kind of a dusty road with uh, several dozen people kind of crowding around trying to hear what he's saying. And he kind of pauses and looks out over the fields and sees some farmers farming and, you know, tells a parable about sowers sowing seed and, and, and it's that kind of thing. He's just observant and reflective and inventive in his teaching. And he tells this little story about the kingdom of heaven. And then he just keeps walking down the road. And, and the image I have is people going sort of, what are, what did he say? What did that mean? What are we supposed to do with that? And, and it does just leave you kind of hanging. He's also very challenging. He, he, um, he is challenging. And, and again, we may hear some of that more today. So I'm, you know, Rachel, I'm, I'm honestly not sure the best answer to your question, but, but that the, the impact is people are just left struck by the integrity of the speaker, how profound and powerful and challenging what he's saying is, how compelling it is. Uh, there is a kind of reality to this guy as a teacher that that just captures people's attention, it would seem. And I don't think it has so much to do with any references to himself that he would give, identifying himself particularly. If anything, he was trying to hide that. Uh, but it's something about the power of the person and the teaching that, that seems to be captivating. I, I don't know whether that's a very satisfying answer, but I, but I think no, it's something that definitely, like that. That definitely helps. Yeah. 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 Thank you. Uh, and, and as I say, by the time we're done today, it might be, um, it might, might be a little clear. The, the, uh, if, if you don't ever read scripture out loud, and, and honestly, I would say this about a lot of things, particularly poetry, um, it's, it's a good practice. And as I've always tried to teach my kids growing up when it was time to read it, you know, Christmas pageants and, and things is pause at commas and stop at periods. Uh, slow down, uh, really slow down and, and let, let this person speak the way you can imagine him speaking, uh, and, and see what happens. It, it's, it's well worth doing reading, reading something out loud. Um, well, let me, let me go ahead then, uh, and, and, and push on a bit, uh, just to stay with Matthew for a minute. Um, as we go on into Matthew, uh, we've had the, uh, I've made the argument that I think he's developing the authority of Jesus in chapters, uh, really five through nine. And then that authority is extended to his disciples as he sends them out in chapter 10. And then the next couple of chapters of episodes before you get to the parables in chapter 13, I would say what's developing there is a, is a, a narrative of tension and judgment. And the tension between Jesus and the temple authorities grows in these couple of chapters. And again, you have Matthew putting some episodes together that do not come alongside each other in the other gospels. But in chapter 11 of Matthew, if you want to have it open, you have, first of all, the question of John from prison and Jesus identifying himself with 
the Messiah who is indicated in Isaiah chapter 35, particularly. And then you have words of judgment in the second half of 11. And then in chapter 12, you'll see a sequence of episodes in which the tension grows on the Sabbath in chapter 12, verse one, we have Jesus and his disciples in the grain fields. He eats the Pharisees see it. They question him on it. You go on down to verse, um, Verse nine, Jesus goes into the synagogue. It's again a Sabbath. There's a man with a withered hand. The question is whether Jesus will heal on the Sabbath. Verse 14, the Pharisees don't like him doing this. They go out and counsel together against him, how they might destroy him. In uh, verse 22, you have another healing. And then the Pharisees say in verse 24, This man casts out demons only by the ruler of demons, by Beelzebub. Jesus questions them on their logic. And then he starts talking about how good trees produce good fruit and rotten trees produce rotten fruit. And he calls these people who are starting to challenge him in verse 34, a brood of vipers. In verse 38, The scribes and Pharisees are wanting to see a sign. And he says that this kind of seeking for a sign, given all the signs that he has already given, particularly, um, is not a request that has integrity to it. It is a, a challenge. And so no sign will be given but the sign of Jonah the prophet. And then he says, people on the outside, people from Nineveh, the queen of the south, will uh, condemn this generation because those outsiders recognized the work of God. And yet uh, these scribes and Pharisees uh, refused to recognize Jesus for who he is. And you have that growing tension um, in Matthew 11 and 12. And then you have the uh, the parables grouped together in chapter 10. And then we'll pick up a bit uh, uh, some next week on chapters 14 to 16. But basically, it brings us right up to the feeding of the 5,000 there after the parables in Matthew. Mar- Matthew goes pretty much from the parables to the feeding of the 5,000 just by way of the story of John the Baptist. And that's that's where in there Mark and, and Luke will have the trip across the Sea of Galilee, casting out of the, the demons, and then coming back and raising Jairus' daughter. But Matthew goes straight uh, from the parables uh, to the feeding of the 5,000. So just that much more about Matthew. Um, but, but let's turn over to Luke then and spend uh, our, the rest of our time in Luke. At this point, we've just kind of brought Luke in to... Um, excuse me, help us with what I call the Matthew problem and sort of push us to think about Matthew more carefully and see what he's up to. But I do want to just linger over Luke and, um, and, and let, let this account kind of have its way. I, I do think that the pattern that emerges in Luke is not only that he clarifies where you have confusion and therefore drops out where you don't have confusion, 
And we'll see that next week, particularly. But the other thing he does is he kind of completes the narrative. John's gospel will do a similar thing, but Luke uh, complements or completes the narrative. We've seen that already, uh, for instance, in the opening couple of chapters of Luke's gospel, where we have that extended uh, narrative of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus, uh, far more there in Luke than we have any place else. We also have the longest account of John the Baptist, not only giving us the birth narrative, but also in the description of John's adult ministry and the kinds of things he was saying out in the wilderness. And so then I think what we have in Luke are additions where it's not absolutely clear, but I think these are additions. So that starting in Luke chapter four, you have the story of Jesus going to Nazareth and not being well received by his hometown because they know him. He's the kid from the neighborhood, for crying out loud. Um, who does he think he is? Stepping into the synagogue, quoting Isaiah 60 and saying the day of the Lord has come. Uh, in, in, and I am here to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. Understandable that his hometown would be struggling to know what to make of him. But I think this is an additional uh, piece beyond what we have in either Mark or Matthew, and that it leads then to Jesus going down to Capernaum and sort of setting up uh, headquarters, as it were, in Capernaum. And then you have that day in Capernaum of Jesus healing in the synagogue and then healing Peter's mother-in-law, and things kind of start from there, and, and he goes out. And you have this whole period of Jesus wandering through the villages and towns of Galilee and and around there, down in Judea as well, and out <clears throat> into some of the neighboring territories. It's sort of run from that day in Capernaum through all these episodes and teaching up to the feeding of the 5,000 is not a bad um, kind of set of benchmarks to be thinking about for these narratives. So I think in chapter 4 of Luke, the section from verse 16 all the way down to verse 30 uh, is an introductory episode that leads him down to Capernaum and to the beginning of his ministry there. I think the same thing is happening then in the beginning of chapter five in Luke, where you have what I would see as an affirmation of Jesus's calling to Simon, Peter and Andrew and to James and John. Remember Jesus met Simon, Peter and Andrew back when they were disciples of John the Baptist they leave John the Baptist to start following Jesus. He heads back up into Galilee. And I think then when he first calls them, as we have it in Mark and Matthew, that's a kind of a first calling. And now in Luke, what we have is a second calling that affirms them. And they don't simply leave their nets and boats. They leave everything in verse 11 and follow him. I'm not going to push that one hard, but just because I think Luke does have this pattern of adding uh, things um, where there's no confusion on, on the part of it, uh, the other Gospels, uh, because there is that pattern. I'm inclined to think of this as an additional episode. And then you have uh, episodes that are familiar to us, the paralytic brought by his friends and let down through the ceiling, the calling of Levi or Matthew and his uh, friends for dinner, the issues of Sabbath teaching in chapter six, then the eating of the grain, and then the healing on the Sabbath. And then you come to another distinctive part of Luke, 
and it is a sermon. In chapter 6, you have the calling of the 12 in verse 12, and then he comes down off the mountain. And so this is often called the Sermon on the Plain as opposed to the Sermon on the Mount. And in verse 20, we are told, turning his gaze toward his disciples, he began to say, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who hunger now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and heap insults on you and spurn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. Be glad in that day. Leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven. For in the same way, their fathers used to treat the prophets. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when people speak well of you, for in the same way their fathers used to treat the prophets. I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who mistreat you. If someone hits you on the cheek, offer him the other one also. If someone takes, takes away your coat, do not withhold your shirt from him. Give to everyone who asks of you. Whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. Just as you want others to treat you, treat them in the same way. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners in order to get back what they've lent. But love your enemies and do good. Lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great. You will be sons of the Most High for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil people. Be merciful, just as your father is merciful. It, it continues on through that chapter, and there's a similar set of teachings that come later uh, in chapter 11. Um, but it's good to just kind of drop into the text every now and then and, and let, it, let it resonate. We'll come back hopefully in a few minutes and talk about it some more. Um, but you can hear, I think, even in that in that simple reading, he's an extraordinary teacher. He gets your attention, and 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 he doesn't play games. It's it's uh, quite convicting. The section from verse seventeen that I read down through verse twenty six is distinctive to Luke, unique to Luke. While there are some resonances there with Matthew, those verses are really distinct to Luke. Much of what I read from there you can find in Matthew in a very similar form. Verse 36 that I ended with, be merciful just as your father is merciful. That is a, a unique to Luke, that line per se. 
much of what follows down through the end of chapter six, you can also find in, in Matthew in, in some form or another. As you continue on through chapter seven, uh, we have some, again, uh, an episode that we at least have in Matthew, the centurion slave. And this is the issue of authority. This is the one that Matthew pulls in early um, in his uh development of the authority of Jesus. It's back there in chapter eight as a healing that focuses on the issue of authority. You don't even need to come under my roof. You just need to speak the word. And then down in verse 11, we have an interesting little um, passage that's unique to Luke. In verse 11 of chapter seven, we read, it came about uh, soon afterwards. And incidentally, that's the kind of phrase you get a lot in Luke. Um, the sort of in those days something happened or soon afterward or sort of in that time. And, and Luke is interesting as a historian. He is also careful sort of not to get too specific. Um, but anyway, it came about soon afterwards that he went to a city called Nain. This is kind of in central Israel. Uh, his disciples were going along with him, accompanied by a large multitude. Now, as he approached the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. A sizable crowd from the city was with her. And when the Lord saw her, he felt compassion for her and said to her, do not weep. And he came up and touched the coffin. The bearers came to a halt and he said, young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak. And Jesus gave him back to his mother. And fear gripped them all, and they were glorifying God, saying, A great prophet has arisen among us. God has visited his people. One reason this is a striking little episode is because of the geography involved. The little town of Nain is on the same hill as the town of Shunem, which would have been the Old Testament town back in the time of Elijah and Elisha. And if you go to Second Kings chapter 4, you'll read the story of Elisha, who was wandering around in the same territory that Jesus would have been wandering around in. And in the town of Shunem, there was a woman um, and her husband who uh, whom Elisha would visit. And so they actually constructed a room for him to be able to stay in. And he did that and sort of they had a, a special relationship. And at one point, Elisha asks the woman, you know, what can I pray for for you? And what, what do you seek? And she was childless and said she longed to have a child. And Elisha says in the year, within a year, you will give birth. She does. And then the child grows up. And as a young man, he's out working in the field, has some kind of a, a, a head injury or a tumor or something and 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 dies and so he is left there with with his mom and she with him and so she goes finding the prophet and gets to elisha elisha initially sends his servant but then the the widow who the woman who is now a widow refuses to let elisha alone and so she and he travel back down and elisha raises her son from the dead it is obviously a part of the lore and legend of this particular town. And so now Jesus in virtually the same spot 
does a miracle very similar to what Elisha had done. And this is one reason why I do think this parallel between Elijah and John the Baptist and Elisha and Jesus is a striking one. And it seems here, I think, to have caught Luke's attention because it's caught the attention of these people in this village. When they conclude um, by glorifying God and saying a great prophet has arisen among us, these people all know what they're talking about. They they all know the story of Elisha. He is a local um, for them. And God has visited his people is a reference to a great prophet is among us, just as what's the case several centuries before when Elisha was present. And needless to say, none of that would have been lost on Jesus either. Uh, so very interesting little addition in Luke. This is the only place where you'll find it. And um, it, it is a striking little addition. We then have the story of John's question from prison. And Luke gives us an account very much like what we have in Matthew. And then from there, we have another addition in Luke, chapter 7, verses 36 and following. And let me go ahead and read this one as well. And as I do this, I'm, I'm sorry, I meant to say this earlier. Be listening as best you can in this quick look through for for what's distinctive to Luke. What kind of tone do these additions particularly create? Everything from those birth narratives that are there in Luke through the other things that we've just mentioned to something like this story we're about to read. How, how do they distinguish Luke by way of his tone or his theme or, or how he's, how he is constructing his gospel. So verse 36, one of the Pharisees was requesting Jesus to dine with him and he entered the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. Okay. This is the picture of sort of eating off more or less off the floor. And so you're sort of reclining by the side of the table. Behold, there was a woman in that city who was known, known as being a sinner. We don't know exactly what that means, but it's clear she's got this reputation. When she learns that Jesus was at table with a Pharisee, she brought an alabaster jar of perfume and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and kept wiping them with the hair of her head, kissing his feet and anointing them with perfume. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know what sort of a person this woman is who is touching him. She's a sinner. Jesus, discerning Simon's thoughts, says to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And Simon replied, please say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they were unable to pay, he graciously forgave them both. Which of them, therefore, will love him more? Simon answered and said, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. And Jesus said to him, you judged correctly. Turning toward the woman, Jesus said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with her tears, wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss of greeting, but she, since the time I came in, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she anointed my feet with perfume. 
For this reason, I say to you, her sins, which are many, have been forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And Jesus said to the woman, your sins have been forgiven. And those who were reclining with him began to say to themselves, who is this man who even forgives sins? And then he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, I will say, uh, you know, it's another example of Jesus's authoritative teaching. <laughs> he says more in two lines than I can say in two years. I, it is just extraordinary. Um, he just, he just, Simon, I got, I got a question for you, <laughs> you know, and 15 seconds later, he's just nailed it. Two people out of debt. Which one do you think will be more grateful? So that's an addition in Luke, and it's one well worth remembering because um, we will have a similar picture uh, more than once again. And so this sets a sort of a precedent, I think, uh, that becomes important, not just as an episode on its own, um, but because of uh, how it will be picked up later uh, in a way that we won't get to until the second semester. But um, good, good to recall it. And good to just see that, again, Luke gives us something here that the other Gospels do not give us. He also tells us in the beginning of chapter 8 about the women in verse 2 who were traveling with him. Uh, Some had been healed of evil spirits, some of sicknesses. Mary, who was called Magdalene, from whom seven demons had been cast out. Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's steward. Susanna and many others traveling with Jesus, contributing to their support and to his support from their private means. We then have Luke's version of the parables, although it is pretty much just the one parable of the uh, sowing of the seed. And then from there, Luke takes us across the sea to the casting out of the demon of the the gathering demoniac, comes back, he comes to meet Jairus, and then goes to raise Jairus's daughter from the dead. In chapter 9, then, um, we have him sending out the 12. Herod hearing about it. The apostles returning in verse 10. And immediately uh, we skip. Um, I'm sorry, we have the, the, uh, the return of the apostles and the feeding of the 5,000 in the verses that follow there from 11 to 16, 17. And then Luke takes us right to what will be Peter's profession of faith. But between Luke chapter 9, verses 17 and 18, you can insert pretty much all of Mark chapters 7 and 8 and all of Matthew chapters 14 to 16. You can also slip John chapter 6 in there. So it's very interesting. That's between verses 17 and 18 of chapter 9 in Luke. And it's a great example, as we'll talk about next week, of Luke dropping out when there isn't any confusion between the two accounts that Matthew and Mark give us, which which I find pretty striking. It's part of why I really do think Luke has the other two Gospels pretty much in front of him 
in some form or another as he writes his own gospel. Well, that brings us up then to the feeding of the 5,000, and that kind of gives us the, the sweep of that period from the day in Capernaum that things begin with through to the feeding of the 5,000. And, and along the way, we've been able to see some of what's unique to Luke, uh, some of these episodes that I think are quite gripping. Um, but I'd be interested, what sort of observations do you have as to the tone of Luke's gospel or themes that he seems to be developing just from even that much of a look and particularly having had some time to be thinking about Mark and Matthew, how do you see Luke as being different from Mark or Matthew? Any thoughts? It's, it's worth, worth continuing to ponder and, uh, and particularly thinking about those, those episodes that are unique going right back to the birth narratives that are really quite full and, and rich in, in Luke. Um, the episode of Nazareth, the additional passage, I think, of, of affirming the disciples and following Jesus, and then these couple of things we've just looked at here. Any, any sense for the kind of tone or character it gives Luke's gospel? We can, uh, I'll, I'll let you keep thinking about that one. But for the few moments that we've got, uh, let's go ahead and go to that handout that I gave you. If you can pull that up, I sent it just an hour before class, but it's a parallel between the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount that Matthew gives us in chapter 5 and the Beatitudes, if you will, of Luke that we've gotten in chapter 6. So if you can... Um, just pull that up or, or have a finger in both Matthew 5 and Luke 6. Um, that'd be great. In Matthew, we are told when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and after he had sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them saying, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in this same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And switching over to Luke, we read, Jesus came down with them, <coughs> that's his disciples, stood on a level place. There was a large crowd of his disciples, a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem, the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. And that was, that's a pretty big spread of territory. And he raised his eyes toward his disciples and began saying, 
<clears throat> Blessed are you who are poor. For yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you will laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and insult you and scorn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and jump for joy, because behold, your reward is great in heaven. Their fathers used to treat the prophets the same way. But woe to you who are rich, for you are receiving your comfort in full. Woe to you who are well fed now, for you will be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you will mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you. For their fathers used to treat the prophets the same way. I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who are abusive to you. And he continues and concludes, be merciful, just as your father is merciful. What what differences strike you most between those two sets of terse statements? The ones in Luke seem almost more material, right? Like like poor in spirit versus just poor, hunger and thirst for righteousness versus just hungry, right? Like if you weren't listening to Luke in a, any sort of spiritual realm, you would assume like that the, the easiest reading is a very physical need versus maybe more spiritual in Matthew. Mm-hmm. Yeah, blessed are the poor in spirit in Matthew. Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness in Matthew. Blessed are you who are hungry now. That's one of the obvious ones, too, is um, the location, the mountain in Matthew, which I guess I've heard, at least I've heard as reflection of kind of the Jewish kind of Moses speaking to the people from the mountain. Uh and then Luke says it was a, a level place. And I guess in some ways, the sort of blessed are you that are sort of italicized maybe speaks to more of a sort of equality or speaking sort of face to face to people. Um, and not that Matthew's saying he's speaking down to them, but, but in the way it's like the authority versus sort of the, um, equality and the way those, I guess, complement each other, um, could be. Yeah, yeah, uh, that's all very interesting. The um, Matthew uh, does the blessings in the third person, plural. They will receive mercy. They will see God. They will be called the sons of God. Um, you don't get to the second person until verse eleven. Blessed are you, finally in Matthew. Uh, but but throughout, it's the more generalized as you say declaration of blessing to such people in luke it is directed to you blessed are you who are poor you who are hungry you who weep you who are insulted and the difference between the mountain and the plain is interesting i i'm not sure what to make of it or, or to make too much of it there there are numerous or certainly several 
mountain episodes in the gospel records and and it does seem there's significance in them and you're right to link them to things like Horeb and Moses um that, that the mountains matter and and yet the idea that you, that Jesus comes into the plain and is among the multitude both cases he he seems to address himself to his disciples but the multitude is there listening and there is something about coming down onto the plain i think you're right madison that that it sort of comes down to the, to the people right right there to the poor to the hungry and they are poor and hungry and he comforts them anything else what what else strikes you as the differences Does Luke have only beatitudes? Yeah, Brian. I say there are no woes in Matthew. I mean, right? Matthew saves the woes for the end of the book. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 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 It's interesting, isn't it? Verse twenty-four of Luke six. Uh, the tone switches over, and and it's interesting. I, um, while there is a there is a spiritual dimension being hinted at in the version we have in Luke, um, I think it's important to let it be oriented toward the material, physical, embodied realities of people's actual experience here, and of Jesus giving comfort and warning that is to be taken seriously. Um, when we get to verse 24, I think that becomes particularly clear. It's not just rich spiritually who are well-fed spiritually. It is beware, you study center directors who live comfortably in your suburban homes, you know, um, with with wealth and food and no worries. Um, wo- woe to you who are rich, because you are you are getting what you're going to get. I, I hope you're finding your wealth satisfying and that makes you happy, because that's what it's going to amount to um and beware you who are well fed tomorrow you may well be hungry you who laugh will mourn and be careful when people speak well of you oh i'll tell you yesterday we were were doing this in class and and it just convicts me every time i hear this kind of teaching i it is very convicting stuff and and it's case it's not obvious to you as it is to me i am personally both a scribe and a pharisee i have both an mdiv which means i have mastered divinity and i have a phd which means i am both a pharisee and a scribe and the occupational hazards uh, that were there two thousand years ago are still there and i feel them i have all the temptations of being a scribe and a pharisee and I have all the temptations that come with being wealthy. I, I, I mean, I, I guess on the one, I guess in, by some standards, I'm not particularly wealthy, but I, but in my word, I am. Um, and, and there, there's some real sobering issues here. And, and you just go on with Jesus and he says, I say to you who hear <laughs> and those phrases, you who have ears to hear. Do you have ears to hear? Love your enemies. Do good to people who hate you. 
don't go on social media and let the world know how wrong it is. I it, love your enemies and figure out what that means. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Give, 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 expecting nothing in return. Be merciful. Just as your father is merciful. And, and, and I will say, you know, to come back to the question Rachel raised at the beginning, when I let this word speak, and I don't just kind of skim over it quickly, like I'm so inclined to do in so much of my reading, and I pause, and you read it out loud, and you hear that voice, and however familiar you may be, even with ideas or phrases, you dare to hear it. It is remarkable and it is convicting and I would say it is life-giving and, and Luke captures it and Luke will continue to capture among other things, this identification of Jesus with those who are poor and those who are hungry. And he will continue to warn those of us who are rich and well-fed and call us to a way of life. Um, that is about the good of others and not just our own comfortable lifestyles. Uh, it's time to stop. Oh, wow. It is more than time to stop. I'm sorry. I went several minutes over, but uh, worth it for sure. Um, thanks as always. And uh, I have not been doing great on office hours. I don't know if any of you have come by. Um, please uh, shoot me a note if you want to come by and, and I'll be trying to get those back into some kind of order. I just blame everything like that on COVID or anymore, anymore. Um, my, we, we had our own scare. My wife was sick over the weekend. She got tested on Saturday. Thankfully she came out negative on that. Uh, but yeah, life is what it is. At any rate, I'm glad we can do this. Thank you for joining in and look forward to seeing you next week.